Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. This podcast is made possible by the innovative team behind Peak Fishing. I use a Peak vise for my fly tying and can say with authenticity that these vices are designed for optimal functionality and efficiency, all while keeping a low price point for the consumer. I suppose this could be expected by a company whose sole designers are mechanical engineers who also fly fish. Look for a list of prices and dealers at www.peakfishing.com. For Pacific Northwest steelheaders, Trey Combs is a household name. But what many of these anglers don't realize is that Trey has been just as active in the saltwater world as he is in the fresh. Primarily known as an author, it's difficult to find any content from Trey outside of his writing. This, of course, only heightened my desire to have him share his story here on Anchored. So I arranged to meet with Trey at his home in Port Angeles, Washington, and settled in to learn more about the man who, for so many years, has highlighted the stories of those who pioneered the sport. I felt it was his turn to have someone do the same for him. And so my dad was in the Navy, mm-hmm. eventually became an admiral. Um, I was born, he was in flight school, Pensacola, Florida, that's where I was born, in Pensacola, Florida. And uh, from time to time I lived with my grandparents in Port Townsend here. Right. And I love my mother dearly, uh, but my grandparents uh, made a huge impression on me from uh, from my earliest memories. My first trout fishing I ever did was with my grandfather. The first fly fishing I ever did was with my grandfather. In, uh, in Washington? Right here in Port Townsend. And how old are you now, Trey? 
75. Okay. So this is a while ago. Yes. Okay. <laughs> a long while ago. And, uh, but my grandfather, um, it always amazed me that my grandfather, I think he was born in 1879. My, he was 50 when my mother was born and he did not expect to ever see her grow up because the longevity expectations in those days was much less than it is today. Mm-hmm. And he lived to be 97. And, um, it always stunned me that uh, my grandfather could read and write while Jesse James was still alive. I mean, that's Spanda. And he was part of the gold rush as a young man. He went to the Klondike and he was like, he was like field and stream come to life. Went to the Dakotas every year with his uh, hunting dogs to, to hunt pheasant and hunted ducks here over at the Dungeness Spit. And uh, fish for steelhead, fish for salmon. Uh, in the fall, as a little kid, he'd get one of his tugboats with a deck chair, couple deck chairs, and we'd troll for hook-nosed silvers out there in the bay. In those days, they would, uh, before the hatcheries down in the canal got going, now the, the silvers just kind of roar through. But in those days, they were here for weeks. But anyway, um, from... My earliest memories, uh, for some reason, I was uh, intrigued with uh, birds. Mm. So, um, I mean, as a five or six-year-old, grandfather would take me down to Kaitai Lagoon and drop me off on his way to work in the morning. And uh, I'd sit, I'd walk down there and watch the ducks with my binoculars <coughs> and stuff, and then he'd come back and get me. And so um, he made a profound impression on me. Mm-hmm. I mean... Um, he was the complete outdoors guy. I can remember emptying his creel. I think I wrote, uh, wrote about this maybe a little bit in uh, Steelhead Fly Fishing and Flies, but he'd go to the Elwha and uh, bring his uh, wicker creel. That's it right up there. That's the original one? Yeah. Oh. It's probably 100 years old. That's amazing. But uh, he'd uh, bring his trout back and... Uh, We'd, he'd empty the creel out, and we'd clean the fish, and then he'd cook them up. And I had nothing really, uh, never ever really had anything going with my father. I mean, just didn't happen. There was no click at all. Did you have siblings? Do you have brother? Siblings? Yeah, I have a brother. Is he younger or older than you? About the same age, eighteen months younger. Okay, so you're the you're the eldest. Yeah, and he lives in Thailand. He's got a very young wife in Thailand. So. uh we both went to the Naval Academy. I got an appointment from California, and he got one from Washington State. He went through the the academy, and I did not. I had, didn't like the academics. I wanted to be a biologist, but to please my family, who wanted me to. My grandfather went to Annapolis. My father did. My brother did. You know, it was kind of ordained that I would go. So um, I did, but I. Uh, I mean, your degree there is in electrical engineering, which just bored me to death. Mm-hmm. Had you had you worked in fishing at all up till this point? Uh, or were not, you just an avid fisherman who? I was. That's all I was really interested in was was fishing and hunting and anything to do with the outdoors. But you cho- you didn't want to choose at this point in your life anyway. You didn't want to pursue a path in fishing as a career. Or you just felt pressure to go into the base? I went to Annapolis uh, and was there almost a year. But um, 
No, I left and went to a school in the West Coast and, and studied biology. Okay, so you did follow your heart then. Oh, yes. Excellent. So now you're in your early 20s and... Graduated from college. Yep, okay. California. So let me get this straight. You graduate high school at 17. You go into the academy. You stay there for... Nine months. Okay, okay, okay. So at this point now, you're basically like 19 years old. Mm-hmm. You're just a young guy. And you decide, I'm going to go and I'm going to be a biologist. Was there any pressure from your family not to do that? Or was everybody pretty supportive? Um, my father was disappointed that I didn't to graduate from Naples. Um, but, um, you know, he wasn't supportive whether I'd been there or not. So it didn't really matter. What would Grandpa say? Oh, my grandfather. Uh, I came back and I ultimately lived with him. Right. So uh, he was happy about that. Mm-hmm. And, um, in fact, he helped finance my uh, fifth year of, uh, I, I got a degree in teaching. I switched from, oh, I had, a, I had twin, uh, three majors. I had geology, biology, and uh, and then education, which was a breeze. And uh, the quickest way to make money back then was um, be a school teacher. Okay. I mean, I, I could... I could roll right into that, and uh, it paid well. And uh, then I had, uh, I was writing furiously outdoor magazine articles and working on a book called The Steelhead Trout way back when. Mm-hmm. So it was a good fit. I was not, I did not want a guide. Right. Uh, and I still, I mean, I've, I host and I guide, but I work under... Um, the evening hatch. So if a guy falls down, breaks his neck, uh, there's somebody else. There's somebody else he can sue other than me. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. let, let but I have to back up before we get to your career. Just help me understand because a lot of this stuff I don't think is common knowledge. So you got your degree in biology. You got your degree as a teacher. Mm-hmm. Are you at this point in the fishing industry, if you will, as no. a writer? Yes. How did you get into it? Um, how did you How did you get your work published? Um, good, good question, uh, April. I was uh, I was at a, a checkout counter in the supermarket, and I saw this magazine called uh, uh, Salmon Trout Steelheader, Northwest Salmon Trout Steelheader by uh, Frank Amato, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I, I I bought a copy, and I was going through it, and I'd been doing research on steelhead, and on steelhead flies while I was in college. Okay, so you're still an avid angler all throughout your high school and your college years. Crazy. Okay. I graduated dead last in high school. <laughs> because you were too busy fishing. All the time. Yeah, okay, I figured as much. And I didn't, I didn't care. Mm-hmm. I didn't go to the graduation. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> now I was up in the Shenandoah River fishing for smallmouth. Right. And uh, I, I didn't. The fact that I graduated was a miracle. They, you know, they they gave me a passing grade just to get me out of the high school <laughs> thing. Okay. And uh, interesting story. My father just hated what I was doing, but uh, he came into my room one day, and my room was my bedroom was stacked with uh, outdoor magazines, Field Stream, Outdoor Life sports field 
I knew every one of them. Joe Brooks was my hero. I didn't collect baseball cards. I had these magazines, and I read them from cover to cover, and then read them again, you know. Mm-hmm. And he came into the room one day, and I had brought back a report card with two D-minuses and three Fs. Ouch. So I was flunking. Of the five subjects, I was flunking three of the five, and the other two I was barely, barely getting a passing grade. And um, so he said, um, he said, like, what in hell are you going to do with yourself? What are you going to do? And I said, uh, what do you want to be? And uh, I was reading um, a story in Field and Stream by Ted Trueblood. And I, and I said, I want to do what this guy does. My father pulled a, ripped the magazine out of my hand and he threw it across the room. He said, you can't. Oh. And stormed out. And, uh, so, uh, of course I could and did. I mean, I, that was like, so, um, but. So you're reading STS and you see all these guys, right? Yeah. Now. So I, I see, see the writing going on in uh, Salmon Trout's two letter and I'm going, oh, God, you know, I can, I've got a hundred articles for my research. Oh yeah. I mean, I could just. Hand him an article every issue forever. <laughs> so um, I was scared to death. I didn't know that Frank was uh, working as a, a bag boy at the supermarket. No way. Really? Yes. Yeah. Okay. To make extra money. This must have been so long ago. Yeah. Okay. It was in the uh, let's see, be about nineteen, late nineteen sixties. Okay. And uh, Frank was just a kid, and. Uh, with two babies, I mean, uh, one real baby, and then the other one, uh, um, his other son was in a body cast because he was there was a problem with his development, and you'd never know it now, of course. But anyway, so um, there was a phone number on there, and I called Frank, and I said, "You don't know who I am, but you know, I've been doing a lot of research about steelhead and steelhead flies. I barely got it out because I was scared to death." <laughs> right. And uh, Frank says, "Well." Why don't you send me a piece? So I had a two-page article on the parmachine bell or something. I think that was... So I just sent him the... And with a little picture of the fly that I'd taken. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I got the picture in April, but... Um, so Frank published it, and he sent me my first check for writing. was $5. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I wrote for, wrote for Frank. Gosh, um... You know, still at fly fishing flies was in print for 29 years. So now at this point you're picking up speed. You're really starting to publish a lot of your work. Yeah, and um, this is not a knock on Frank at all. I was doing this monumental work that would be uh, steelhead fly fishing, the great rivers, the anglers, and so forth. It's mm-hmm. Some people have unkindly referred to it as a four-pound doorstop. I have a copy, by the way, and it is not a doorstop. It's fantastic. In fact, I've got a lot of friends who that 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 book is their Bible. Really? So yeah, it's uh, don't discredit yourself on that. No, I uh, I I kind of regret in some ways that we didn't do it in color. Uh, it was twice as long as Nick. My, I was under contract to come up with a book about eighty thousand words, and it was two hundred thousand words, and and. Uh, Nick called me and said, what in the hell am I supposed to do with this? And, and I said to Nick, you know, just publish it, Nick. 
it'll work. It'll work for you. So, uh. Bet your ass it worked. Yeah. <laughs> it was a huge success. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know if, if financially it was a huge success or, or any of the specifics there, but from a history standpoint, it worked. It was the best selling book in the history of the publishing house. Yes. And, uh, and, and he did not do just fishing books. He did other books as well, but he, um, the book came out, was about, uh, I think it was about early October. And he did 7,000 hardbacks. And he said, uh, the print run would last two years. And I said, you know, uh, this book's going to sell really fast because there hasn't been a book out there for 10, 15 years. The book sold out in two weeks. So, uh, I mean, even the depositories didn't have any. The Orvis company in San Francisco, they ordered 50 copies, sold them in one weekend. But you did, you guys did a reprint, right? Oh yeah, it's been through a number of print, printings. Right. And, and it's not going to go through anymore? Mm. Okay. No, it's, uh, the dynamics of, of how East Coast books are marketed on the big publishing houses, you know, once they blow out a book, then they just clean them out. You know, they end up in Costco. Mm-hmm. Um, they wholesale them out. They, uh, that's the disappointment because, uh, the royalties are always based on what they sell the book for wholesale. Right. So, uh, you know, it's, the book is $40 and the wholesale price is 20 and you're getting a 10% of wholesale. You're getting $2 on a book. But then you find that, uh, most of the books are not sold that way. I mean, they, they are to a small little bookstore, but for the big chains and whatnot, they negotiate a much lower price wholesale. Yeah. So you really get screwed. Where Frank, you know, he just, Frank uh, was less dynamic, but much more durable in terms of how he marketed. Right, okay. So if I am, um, this next book will probably go through Amazon. Well, let me, let's get there. Well, let's get there, but not yet. Okay. I do want to ask you about Steelhead specifics, but not until I wrap my head around your career. So at this point now, you're not guiding, you're writing. How are you making your living? Teaching school. What grades were you teaching? Uh, everything from fifth grade uh, through high school. Well, I was, when Steelhead Fly Fishing and Flies, after it came out, this is kind of crazy. <laughs> My dream was to uh, have a, a, an offshore sailboat. We have wooden boat building school here. There's only two in the United States. One's in Port Downs and the other's in Maine. So I, uh, I invested... Uh, what would, at the time was a huge amount of money for a, a, a school teacher. I uh, put down, I borrowed the money and put down $15,000 on, uh, on a kind of a starter kit on a, four, a 40-foot boat in which I would build, a, you know, they would give me the hole and the ballast and they'd put an engine in it and they'd give me the rigging and then I could spend a couple years building the interior. Mm-hmm. And... They took everybody's money and skedaddled and left in a mess. And, uh, in fact, the, the feds came in and, and uh, seized my boat. No. Yeah. And you're just a teacher trying to make a living. Are you married at this time? Uh, no. So no dependents? No. And okay. I had, uh, um, I, I did have my uh, kids with me. Their mother died. California. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. So you have two children at this time? Three. 
You have three. I have three boys. Oh, okay, my head's spinning. So, wait a second. So, you were married young? I was married when I was in college, when I was 21. Right. I was going to Whittier College. Okay. This uh, beautiful Danish girl was going to Whittier College. Right. So, uh, we got married. And uh, we lived in Southern California for a couple of years, and I taught school. Okay. And she got a teaching, she had a teaching credential, and she taught school. And I did not want to stay in California. We had a huge disagreement about this, but eventually um, she did not want to come to Port Townsend. She decided that uh, it was agreeable to her that we'd, but we'd go live in Tacoma. Mm-hmm. It's a long story, but... After we got divorced, uh, and she remarried, the kids were in a horrible uh, domestic s- situation. It was just a nightmare. There was nothing, and there was nothing I can do about it. And eventually, um, she took her own life. Oh, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. Yeah, well, it's a, it's it's a tragic story, uh, and it gets even worse because my oldest son how it was how it affected him. Um, but the uh, so the kids just. Boom, they landed on my doorstep. Wow. So you have three children. You just had the carpet pulled out from under you with this boat that's now been seized. What do you do? What happens from here? I, uh, the, uh, federal bankruptcy court said that they would, uh, that if I gave them, uh, I think it was $3,000, they'd let me take my boat back. And the boat was, a third of what I'd paid for, and then they wanted three thousand dollars on top of that, which I was just—I thought it was outrageous. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I, I went down to the boatyard and uh, got a guy who works in the yard with a with a big, um, like a bulldozer, and I got a crowbar and I broke the locks in the uh, <laughs> on the boat building. Yeah. And we pulled open the doors. We got a line around. I had this, uh, it was, my boat was in a metal, heavy duty metal cradle. Cradle itself was worth a lot of money. So we put lines around it and we dragged it out into the uh, boat yard and, and set it up amid a whole bunch of other boats under construction. And then I bought all these power tools. So about a six or eight months later, I got a little messenger from the office. Please come to the principal's office because there's a man here that wants to talk to me. <laughs> okay. So I knew the FBI would eventually come out and try to retrieve the assets. And the president of the local bank uh, was a guy, Rennie Bergstrom, and really a great guy. And uh, I'd had some dealings with the bank and made good on everything. And so I went in uh, after I seized my boat and, and set up a boat building area around it so that I could work on this boat. I went down to see Rennie and I told him what had happened. He was outraged. So he said, uh, "So you know, what's your plan?" I said, "I want to. I want to finish this boat, and I don't have the money to do it. And." Uh, and I want to get it. I want to have a U.S. documented vessel. Mm-hmm. And not getting into the weeds on this too much, but a documented vessel means that the government can seize the boat in time of war if, uh, if for any reason it's needed. 
but it is a uh, it's a U.S. vessel. I mean, you to have a documented, you've got to have a piece of wood inside the boat near the bow on the inside that is cannot be removed, where the numbers of your documentation are chiseled in there. And it's totally different from being a privately owned vessel. I mean, I own the vessel, the bank owns the vessel, but the government owns the vessel too. Right. So when the FBI shows up and said, uh, you know, your boat is an, is an asset in the federal bankruptcy court and we've got to have it back. And I said, you can't, you, I won't give it back. And I don't own the boat that you Bank of America owns the boat, hmm. and it's also a U.S. documented vessel. And they were stymied; they didn't know what to do. Okay, I like that. So uh, they eventually there was a final documentation that went down. There, there was five boats involved in this bankruptcy, and they had, each guy had ponied up a bunch of money. They came to the boat that I had, Shearwater, and they just said, "You know, it's completed. The transaction is all done." So I had my boat, and. Uh, Three years later, um, launched the most beautiful boat you've ever seen. It was just absolutely gorgeous. How does this then branch into your, your saltwater fly fishing and your experience as a blue water angler? Very quickly, a buddy of mine and I decided to play hooky one day. And, from uh, teaching, you mean? From, yeah, we called in sick. <laughs> yes. And, uh, I knew you guys did that sometimes. <laughs> we went to Seattle and uh, um, looked at the... Ocean sailing boats. I mean, it's just like one of these dreams, you know. And there was a Canadian boat, and it had been seized in a bankruptcy, and they were taking sealed bids on it. Well, I didn't have any money after paying off all the debts on this uh, on the boat that I'd built. So I wrote a check out for seventy thousand and put it in the sealed bid because the boat, the replacement value of the boat was like quarter million bucks. And um, so a couple, and I did. We just did it as a joke, just to be jerks. <laughs> and a couple weeks later, I got a call from the broker saying, "You've got your yacht." Wait, what? That he said your bid was the low, was the high bid at seven thousand dollars. Seventy. Oh, seventy thousand dollars. Yeah. Oh God! But did you have that amount? Of no. <gasps> you jerk. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I had five. I had five hundred dollars in my account. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. I, well, I went to the bank. Uh, with uh, where Rennie Bergstrom was still president of the bank, and I told I told Rennie I said you're not going to believe what I just did, and uh, I desperately need your help and I need some time. And because um, you couldn't just say it was a joke, go to the next highest bid. I could have, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, you're you know that's kind of fraud in a way that you're yeah so. Um, First, Rennie looked at me like uh, he was kind of irritated, you know, and he just did, he was kind of speechless. I'd do something so stupid. And then he said, uh, I said, the check's going to, check's going to come in probably today or tomorrow. And uh, I, I want you to stand on, you know, stand behind the check and, ca- and go ahead and run it. That's a huge loan. Yeah, without any, uh, without, I mean, I didn't have the cash from the sale of the other boat or anything. And, and Rennie finally said, Okay. We've done business before. I'll do it for you. Banks wouldn't do that today. No, not 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 a hope. No, now. they'd call the police probably instead. Probably. So I uh, sold my uh, I sold Shearwater. Oh, okay. So just right after that, then. Yeah, and I had uh, some money, and then they, they took a. I had just built a, a gorgeous new home. I mean, it was really really a nice house. So Rennie 
slapped us, uh, said, I'm going to, you know, in effect, seize your house and put a second on the house until we can sort all this out. Yeah. And, uh, by God, uh, one day I sailed into Port Townsend with the sleekest looking <sighs> quarter million dollar offshore yacht anybody ever seen and everybody was looking around for who died. So I got into offshore racing and eventually, not with that boat, but with another boat, uh, that I owned. Uh, and this is not with, this was not with smoke and mirrors. This is on a teacher's salary next to nothing. Yeah. I ended up putting my boat in the, uh, Victoria Maui Transpac race. Um, and it was a joke in the town here, you know, the trailer, train won't even find Hawaii, much less, uh, <laughs> and, um, we had gone through a, uh, months and months of, uh, hardcore training by a very, very famous, virtually unknown in Port Townsend, but a very famous, um, circumnavigator. I mean, I read about him as a kid in books. He was a little older than I was, and he taught us how to race boats. Bill, Bill Nance was the guy's name, and, uh, I won the Vic Maui, broke all the records. No way! Yeah. Okay, so the boat that you didn't actually think you could ever own, to the race that you didn't actually think you could ever win. Yeah, we sailed into Lahaina and broke the broke the Transpac record for boats under forty feet, and um, it was a big deal. Yeah, were you fishing off this boat? No, uh, but to get around to your original question, um, April was that going through these boats. I took my kids every year, put them on the boat on my cruising boat, the first one was Shearwater. Mm-hmm. And we go up the inside passage to Alaska, the Queen Charlotte's, I had dive gear, and I had a Zodiac I towed, and uh, it was like a toy box, and the kids were with me for months. And um, Did you pull them from school to go? No. The day school was out, I mean, I spent months getting the boat provisioned. Yeah. And um, I... You know, I'd have eight or ten cases of a beer and, and cases of wine underneath the floor. It was a big boat, mm-hmm. and uh, you're allowed to take, I think, two bottles of wine into Canada or something. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'd always have a, a basket of pitted fruit, and then they, they'd come down and say, well, are you taking any alcohol? And I had this little liquor locker there, and I'd say, well, I've got a bottle of whiskey here, and I've got a bottle of wine and I have all this fruit, and then they'd say, oh, well, that's pitted fruit. You can't take that into Canada. Oh, my goodness. You're so sneaky. So you totally distracted them with the fruit. Yeah, because they're standing on <laughs> cases and cases of beer and wine. <laughs> and and they, they'd always seize the pitted fruit, yeah. and they knew they'd done their job, and so off they would they'd feel good about themselves, and I'd sail into Canada. And uh, one year, funny, uh, Canada was on a beer strike, so there was no beer available in Canada, and so <laughs> I always tied up with the fishing boats, and I'd break out um, a couple six-packs of cold American beer, and they'd give me uh, halibut and whatever else I wanted, you know. But anyway, and so... you've got uh, three boys with you, so you're you're basically coasting, you're you're sailing the coast. So. Yeah, and I'm, I'm uh, coming back by sailing offshore, too. Mm-hmm. And I got into uh, just being on the ocean, and I, and I loved it. So uh, when I got into um, the long-range fly fishing, Ed Rice did the first charter on Royal Star. We made a movie out of it, and uh, it was such a cool experience, the idea that you you don't go out and come back each day. You just go out at night, you drift around, and the next morning, I mean, you're fishing 
24-7. It was the first time that fly fishermen had been able to just go anywhere. The boats are capable of, of motoring from San Diego to New Zealand without stopping. And then we'd do exploratories. We always had film crews aboard. Mm-hmm. So we'd, uh, we'd go all the way to Clipperton Atoll, which was kind of like the end of the earth. And it is. It's French-owned. It's the most remote piece of speck of land on the planet. Uh, 1,200 miles from Polynesia and 800 miles from the Mexican coast. But we would go to places that nobody had ever been before. But uh, for years, you know, I'd get together with guys and get together with the captain and we just point, point to a speck on the map and say, let's go to this island. It's never been fished before. See what happens. So at this point now, you're a steelheader and you're starting to really dabble in saltwater species. I've been... Big game fly fishing since the mid '80s. So I was steelhead. I mean, I'd go to the, I'd go to the Babine and fish with Lanny Waller, mm-hmm. and then I'd go home and fly to Venezuela and fish for white marlin. Okay, so you just kept it so that you're fishing year round by alternating. I was constantly fishing. gone, right? For a while. So when did you get the idea to write a blue water or, or to write blue water fly fishing? Back in the day, sitting around the bar. It was becoming evident because of long liners and because of commercial fishing and stuff. Fly fishermen was trickling down, but we were beginning to understand where small billfish concentrated on the planet. It was not perfect, but we began understanding like Ahab uh, tracking Moby Dick. We began understanding that baby blacks concentrated off Cape Bowling Green, Australia on the Great Barrier Reef because the affluent and the um, biomass that came off this river system and onto the reef created a food chain that the young marlin could take advantage of. These were 30, 40, 50 pound blacks. That's a size that fly fishermen can tackle. It's a great size, yeah. Yeah, and where a 500 pound black marlin is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, it was not evident then that uh, south and and, uh, and west of Mag Bay held such huge numbers of striped marlin, but it, it would very soon become evident to me personally because we logged in every marlin we caught, we logged it in, and a pattern began quickly beginning to begin to emerge. The uh, small blues were known to be off Puerto Rico and. Uh, uh, whites, obviously, off uh, La Guardia Bank in Venezuela. West Africa uh, was the place where the largest uh, sailfish on the Atlantic sailfish concentrated. It was kind of a bar game, you know, like if you had all the money in the world and, and you could travel to all these places, we began understanding what you could do as a fly fisher as opposed to a big game fly fisherman. Frontier sent me to check out a lodge in the west coast of Colombia. At the same time, they decided that they would have the first fishing tournament, and there would be a fly fishing section in it, too. And uh, it was was, uh, being run by a couple very wealthy guys. One of the guys that ran Avianca Airlines. And in the group that uh, came out to see this were uh, a couple French guys. And uh, they... The uh, older guy was making 
some of the worst sports videos ever made in the history of mankind. How so? They were just cruddy. Okay. And the underwater footage of a of a a sailfish swimming around upside down. I mean, it's like you know they just they just didn't get it. So they were in camp, and my time was up down there. So I was I came out of there and uh, went to the um, Bahia Solano. There was an airstrip in there, and Aces uh, had uh, these shuttle flights that would take me from uh, the Choco, which is their uh, rainforest jungle there, take me from the Choco on the coast up to um, Bogota. So I was uh, really pushing it to try to make this flight, and uh, for one reason or another, it uh, my shuttle got delayed and, uh, they had stuff going on in camp. And, uh, so the two, anyway, the two French guys said, uh, well, we'll ride along with you. So I missed my flight. So we're sitting in the uh, airport with, you call it that, just a little thatched hut waiting for the next flight to come in, which would be several hours. And, uh, uh Francois said, uh, Trey, we are making a movie. In uh, West Africa, we're going to make a movie in Senegal for a hotel. Uh, would you a like tourism to tourism movie? Yeah, it was yeah. about fishing. Right. You know, why don't you come and, uh, and uh, we're going to make a movie about sailfish? I'm going like, yeah, Atlantic sailfish, largest in the world, West Africa. Check. Check. Time yet. <laughs> Check. Yeah. Exactly. So I said, uh, yeah, sure. And uh, meanwhile, I'll get you guys uh, into a lodge that I've been working with for, well, many years. Uh, Bahia Pace Villa Lodge, Costa Rica. Well, that started me on this comp deal of international flights. Mm-hmm. Uh, Avianca flew me first class back and forth. I had connections with, uh, I had connections in South Africa with a guy who lived in Durban. And he had strings that he could pull. And I I literally flew around the world for $500 business on <laughs> South African Airways. Were you bringing clients with you, though, or are you just on your own? I'm on my own. And what was the appeal? Why did they want you so bad? Were you writing articles? Uh, in the uh, the African stuff, we were making a movie for the Paradise Hotel. That was part of it. Uh, the East Africa stuff in Mauritius mm-hmm. in Mozambique. Uh, Mozambique, we paid, I paid part of it. And, uh, so I finally, uh, April, I finally came down to Australia. And, I know, uh, I've read all about it. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a big nut. That was expensive. And, uh, I, uh, applied for, um, a comped trip first class with, uh, the, uh, carrier. What's the big carrier that goes to Australia? Um, it's Virgin now, but Qantas, uh, Virgin, Qantas, Qantas, Emirates. Qantas. Yeah. So Qantas um, did a trade-out if I'd write about the trip, which I did. Sent them copies of the book. They said, well, that's a great book, but we want an article. They were upset. I said, are you kidding me? This is like, puts Australia on the map of this black marlin uh, for fly fishing. Mm-hmm. So... So you got the idea to write the book, though, because was there not anything else 
out there? I mean, had Lefty written a saltwater fly fishing book at this point? There was nothing remotely like traveling all over the world and fishing for all the greatest game fish in the world Mm -hmm. in a single book. I mean, it's almost something that it just has to fall in place or it would be impossible to do. You just could not do it for any amount of money. Does it surprise you that people are surprised that you've written a blue water fly fishing book? Does it surprise you that people associate you as a steelhead fisherman first and foremost? Yes, they do. Many people don't even are not even aware that I've ever even done blue water fly fishing. Right, right. And uh, actually, in terms of uh, you know hours, I've spent a vast amount of time on blue water because of the because of the long range fly fishing business that I was doing. Mm-hmm. And. Um, you know, even fishing behind clients and stuff, I've still uh, boated over 100 billfish on the fly. When I quit teaching, I had a severance package. Mm-hmm. So uh, Ed Rice and I uh, made arrangements to be gone a month, and we fished Australia and then the New Guinea. And I fished the north coast of New Guinea and the Bismarck Archipelago for uh, dog tuna. With with Harrow. With who? Rod Harrison. Yes. Yeah. Have you ever met Rod? Yeah, I know Rod pretty well, I think, at this point. He was, we did a podcast together. He's on this show. Rod is the coolest guy in the world. He is one of my favorite people on earth. You know, when Rod was a, a homicide detective. Yeah. Um, when, when Rod would arrest guys, they kept ending up in the hospital with broken arms and stuff. I wonder how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> so. He has no tolerance for bad people. No, and so. The, the police department finally put Rod. Rod didn't speak Japanese, but they put him in this uh, <laughs> in a desk job who required that he could speak Japanese to hold it to keep the job till he could they could retire him. Yeah. So for two years he sat at this meaningless job. That's what he was telling me about. And you know he's got that cute smile. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but the the fact that when he made an arrest, people ended up in the hospital. I had no problem. Uh, Believing that at all, I could just say, uh, yeah, I, I, I would not want to. He'd be the first person to say it too. Yeah, yeah. Rod, uh, Rod spoke his mind. Uh, he was, he was with me on the uh, on the Australian trips, and um, he was the guy that uh, got me going on the dog tooth tuna. Yeah, you know, Rod. I don't know if you read the chapter on striped marlin, but of course uh, I did. Actually, I read the marlin chapters twice. Really? Yeah. Well, you know the story where uh, uh, I free cast to a giant marlin. Rod was in the skiff. And, and the, uh, what do they call them? Rubber duckies? <laughs> yeah. But uh, Rod was in that uh, skiff. And uh, we didn't have GPS in those days. And yeah. we had to send off flares. And we, you know, we fought it all, all afternoon and all into the night. And uh, we finally got it beside the boat. And the guys, the guys screwed up the gaffing. They hit it with a gaff. <laughs> And they couldn't hold it, and the fish came out of the air, and it went down underneath the boat, and I'd locked my drag up. I couldn't get the drag backed off in time, and it broke the leader. That fish was so big. That was uh, more than double the world record. Rod and I were just, like, stunned. Well, let's talk a little bit about world records, because one of the most surprising things that, that I found, anyway, was when I was reading Blue Water Fly Fishing, there was a ton of... <laughs> excuse me, a ton of IGFA reference and, um, and information that I actually didn't really know until I read your book. And 
yet you you don't seem to target steelhead with any sort of IGFA standards or expectations. I mean, do you send your steelhead in for records? So why no. is that? Um, simple. you got to kill them. Okay. But, you, I mean, did you want... You didn't hang all your marlin, did you? I didn't what? You didn't hang all your marlin, kill all your marlin. Do, uh... To apply for a world record. Now, I got a world record black in Australia. Mm-hmm. And uh, the only way to get it in the boat is to gaff it. Ah, uh, I see. Okay. And so, uh, but the only way to claim a record is, excuse me, the only way to claim a record is to hang it on dry land. Right. Weigh it on dry land with certified skills. And you can't, uh, otherwise, if you could do it on a boat, uh, you could take a live fish, mm-hmm. hang it on a scales, but you can't get a satisfactory weight with the boat going up and down and the scales bouncing up and down. So why did that deter you with steelhead but not with marlin? Because, um, for one thing, the fish was mortally wounded when it was gaffed anyway, which is part of the deal. If you're going to, otherwise, you just break the leader and let the fish go. Mm-hmm. And I didn't see the, uh, at the time, I had no, um, I didn't experience any moral turmoil over uh, killing a fish, a saltwater game fish, for a that I knew to be a world record. Um, that uh, I couldn't safely release unless I just broke the leader. I mean, there was it was either you kill the fish, and a week later they weigh it in San Diego. I still hold the the Wahoo record. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was twenty years ago. But, um, Would you break them off now if you went out instead? Oh, if it wasn't a world record? Yeah, I'm about you know, 90, 90 plus percent. So what's the appeal um, with world records? Because I don't understand them. And yet I still, I've been fishing 30 pound for Marlin, and I've got friends saying, ah, oh, you need to be fishing 20 pound. And there's a bit of pressure. I feel like I, I should, because apparently that's the right thing to do, but... I don't care about catching a record, and I've always wondered what the appeal is about records. Um, well, there's a uh, the the it's a fly fisherman. The heaviest tippets that you can use, heaviest so-called class tippet, um, is 10k, 22 pound. Mm-hmm. That's the heaviest, and uh, the class tippet can be any length. The shock including all knots, has to be 12 inches or less. Mm-hmm. But but boring uh, down into your uh, question, in some cases, if you're you know fishing for a uh, big-eyed tuna and you're fishing in schools of thousands of them and uh, you kill a couple fish, um, in effect, what I'd do is if I'd weigh them and apply for the world record and I'd eat them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I didn't, uh, wasn't dishonest about the, uh, for years the largest snook ever caught in a fly was 28 pounds. And I caught a, a 39, 38 and a half pound snook in, uh, in eastern Costa Rica in the jungle areas there. And, um, my, uh, shock tippet was too long by an inch. I could have, could have very easily cut off the fly and 
reconnected it and put in for the record. Yeah, but... And uh, that kind of stuff, I know a couple guys have done stuff like that and it's chased them around. I know a couple guys that do totally bogus records. Well-known guys. Yeah. And, um... But, um... Before he died, Carl Mazur <clears throat> held the world record for Steelhead. Did he... So he killed it then? Yes, he had to. Okay. Oh, I... I so that just for... Do you still have to kill him for a record? No. If okay. you If you had a certified scales right okay. beside the river... And but I mean, for saltwater species, do you still have to kill them? Yeah, if okay. you're, uh, unless you can do it on a beach. Okay, so I will not be setting any records anytime soon. Then I'll just go ahead and start pushing my thirty pound <laughs> without feeling bad about it. Thirty pound uh, um, tippet. Thirty pound class tippet. Yeah, the only downside of fishing really heavy tippets, and I had a group of the Brits. Man, they ran eighty pound right down to the fly. Right. Sometimes. You can get 30 pound, you're okay, but you can have a situation where the heaviest, the class tippets more, is stronger than your fly line. Oh, that's a problem. Or it's stronger than your connections to your fly line, to your backing. Mm-hmm. So the fish just doesn't break you off. It, it takes off with your fly line. Okay. So then the fish is threading around, uh, um, you know, 30 feet of shooting at or something like that. Oh, I don't like that. Is the, But is the trade-off that if you fish too light, you play the fish for too long? No. Um, it depends on the size of the fish, of course, but uh, we, when we first started fishing for marlin, we were using tactics like a lot of, um, we had a lot of tarpon talk going on. Yeah. And uh, we'd, you know, we talked about breaking their spirit and uh, uh, getting alongside of them and keeping them off balance. And it was a bunch of uh, testosterone nonsense. Right. Finally, uh, the guy, uh, the the uh, guy who ran the engine room, said, "Trey, why don't you why don't you keep the line over the back of the fish?" He wasn't experienced at all, and I. Start putting two and two together, and I thought, you know, the, the fish are exhausted after they finish jumping. So, okay, April Volke's in a boat. She's fly fishing. She makes her cast. The boat's out of gear. It's all legal, IGFA legal. The other thing is, you you know, you're not, if you're not worried about records, you control for that matter. But, uh, so you make your cast, you hook your fish. The fish jumps all over the ocean. Finally fishes, finally stops um, jumping. The fish is exhausted. So the captain pushes the boat in reverse and begins backing down on the fish, who might be out 300 yards or 400 yards or something. So while April reels in the backing, the fish is getting a rest, and the rest goes on and on and on. And um, so... Pretty soon, the captain just keeps right on backing until the fish realizes he's going to get run over. So this uh, fresh sailfish, who's completely back to normal, now is forced into sounding. Mm. So April's got the drag set up, and down goes the fish. So the fish is now down below you, and you're trying to fight the fish from the worst possible angle. For one thing, 
they come up your line, they bill your uh, leader. Right. And um, trying to talk a captain in the Americas not to do that is almost impossible. They'll try to sneak sneak it in, but they're only used to gear guys. So, you know, the gear guy stands up there, and he's got a short, stiff rod and 50-pound test, and he's just reefing on a sailfish, and the sailfish comes up. The fly rod, it's the worst possible situation you could be in. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, if a, if a sailfish is, if you're not standing on top of it, a billfish will resist the direction of pull, but he'll do it on the surface or within six feet of the surface. And if you stop the boat and cut the engine, just wait a few minutes. If he hasn't already wrecked your leader, fish will start coming up, and then it's like there she blows. The the uh, angle, the fighting angle for the for the person. April's now instead of bent double trying to pump this fish up and wrecking your back, mm-hmm. the fish is now out in front of you. So now the angle changes for you. And it's dramatically hard for the, on the fish. Okay. Because the fish has already been, has already exhausted itself. And instead of getting a rest, it suddenly has got a tight line. It resists the direction of the pull. It's on the surface and it's pulling directly away from you. And <clears throat> the pressure is unrelenting. And uh, once we got this ballet down and the timing right on it, the danger was killing the fish. There was so much pressure on this marlin that we would we would see them come up and they would be gasping. They're running out of oxygen and they're starting to die. And they're thrashing. Their heads are winging back and forth. And sometimes they'll get you wrapped. Uh, your, your class tip will get wrapped. Like Bill Rapp, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Which they can, of course, cut your leader at that point. But if you're uh, if you're a long ways away, and sometimes they'll turn around and come right back at you because right. they're they're so tired. I've actually had sailfish come back, and I just reached over and grabbed them as they came by. Wow. They're that that exhausted. But if you can't work up on them and and end the fight cleanly at that point. Uh, we did a lot of it by skiff, but the fish will go down for a final time and then it'll die. Oh no. Then you've got a dead marlin two or three hundred feet below you and it takes forever, an inch at a time, almost to the breaking strength of whatever you got set up. Oh my god, I'd be just sick if I reeled in a dead marlin. Carl Mauser. He got the world record 32-pound uh, Kispiox steelhead and killed it and weighed it. Before he died, he said, I wish to God I'd never done it. Well, because yeah. he became he became emblematic of catch and kill. And at the time, it was not the horror show that it came to be. Mm-hmm. And I was just a kid, and uh, I, I was corresponding with Carl. And... Uh, he said, well, he comes down to the Kalama River. So Mazur said he was going to come down there and uh, that I could join him. He had another guy. And uh, he was so full of himself. He came into uh, on the road leading up to the um, general store. 
uh, and where he would be camped, he had actually taken uh, pictures of his of himself holding uh, his record steelhead, and he nailed it to telephone poles all the way down the road. Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was like he was Hollywood. It was like this is this is the biggest star to hit this podunk town, and uh, he became the subject of uh, so much criticism for killing that fish. Right. And today, I mean, that's the record no one wants. Once in a great while, down in the Calicutat, uh, you know, we'll get a I mean, probably. Probably nine out of every ten hatchery fish. They're not even fin clips. You don't even know they're hatchery fish. But if we get one that's fin clipped, because it's a hatchery fish, and we don't want it in the system anyway, we bonk them. Right. And we'll take them back. We do the same thing with Chinook salmon. We take them back. I pulled plugs last year trying to get a Chinook salmon for the, for a group of Japanese that I just love. My favorite clients. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, if it's a hatchery fish, I don't have any trouble bonking it. But a native fish... I just, it's unthinkable. I don't care if I got a 50 pound steelhead. I wouldn't, I'd never kill it. I just couldn't imagine it. No one can. Coming up, Trey speaks with me about steelhead flies, billfish hooks, and more. Again, just a quick thanks to Peak Fishing for making this conversation possible. Peak products are manufactured and assembled in Loveland, Colorado, in the USA. They offer a wide range of fly tying vices and accessories at great prices and can be found at www.peakfishing.com. They can also be found on Facebook. Please feel free to drop them a line and let them know your appreciation for their support. As a steelhead fisherman, what did you always consider your strong suit to be? I mean, what do you feel like you specialize in in the steelhead world? Um, hmm, provocative question. I think just uh, presenting the uh, fly, uh, uh, fishing the fly. I mean, yeah, being able to, you know, lead lead the fly for a broadside view to the fish, um, back bend if I have to. Uh, there's a kind of a symphonic thing, if you will. You can, if you know the certain runs so well you can actually feel the river through your soles of your feet. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just have a super sense of how the fly's going to fish, how it should fish. So um, there were certainly some water on the Skagit that I fished so many times. I just, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, I I think that would be my strong suit. It certainly wasn't, uh, it was a pretty good caster, single-head caster, um, I spent so much time with the short heads on the two-handed rods. Really, right now, I'm kind of getting into properly spray casting. Mm-hmm. It's odd that it would take that long, but uh, I was kind of cheated on it. But uh, Did you have a preference to dry or wet flies? I fished uh, um, I fished both, and, I, and obviously I've caught steelhead on both, but uh, I certainly have fished wet flies more than dry flies. I also fished a, a lot of, uh, if I'm going behind guys for summer fish and they've, I might be the third or fourth angler, then I'll uh, fish a, a lightly dressed fly and I'll hitch it. Mm-hmm. So it's in the surface film and it's waking. And have you found success like that? Yeah. Yeah. 
we, uh, probably about the time we were born, steelhead, steelhead grew in sophistication. We changed from turned down eyes to turned up eyes to, uh, bait hooks in effect, the old style turned down eye with chenille body with some tinsel and a bucktail wing. Um, we changed the way we uh, started dressing the flies. Uh, we were strongly influenced by Lee Wolf's book, The Atlantic Salmon. Mm-hmm. We started using, I started using uh, Wilson dry fly hooks for my wet flies. Okay. Um, and I would uh, dress them very sparsely. The keel weight of a Wilson is so light, sometimes I found that the uh, fish were hooked. The fly was uh, in the fish's mouth upside down, indicating the fly was actually laying on its side at the time the fish took it. So um, there was kind of a revolution going on in the, um, think about this, say about, it started about 1970, in uh, tying more sophisticated uh, steelhead flies that were strongly influenced by uh, English traditions. Mm-hmm. We, we got into spay flies and D flies and uh, we kind of redid uh, a chunky uh, green butt skunk and turned it into a kind of an art piece. The, um, we started, uh, instead of tying it on with a clinch, we started using turtle knots and then we'd uh, put a couple turns of hatchet, half inches around it and we'd uh, fish them um, hitched. So this is all very Lee Wolf Atlantic salmon sort of based. It was, and it was a, uh, the um, the fact that the taxonomically uh, steelhead were uh, Salmo gadneri, and uh, of course the Atlantic salmon is Salmo salar. We assumed that uh, because of the taxonomic similarities, we assumed that. Uh, especially among us who had never caught an Atlantic salmon, that Atlantic salmon and steelhead were virtually identical. Just, you know, we used to call the steelhead, some people call the steelhead the poor man's Atlantic salmon. It was not until a few of us managed to fish for Atlantic salmon that we realized that the two fish are very different. Yeah. And if you go to Montana and you ask someone uh, back in those days, Yes, someone, well, are rainbow trout and brown trout alike? And they go, no, no, they're totally different. They fight different. Uh, brown yeah, trout Different will, water. Yeah. Brown trout will sit there and slug it out in the pool. A rainbow is like, get out of Dodge. And um, the, the ultimate difference, of course, is that uh, Atlantic salmon get huge, bigger than steelhead. So... You're lots of times talking about apples and, and oranges when you're talking about what a big Atlantic salmon can do. And you say, well, they don't leave the pool. They, they'll slug it out in the pool. Well, they will if they're 15 or 20 pounds or 25 pounds. But if they're, uh, if you're talking about a 40 pound fish, the 40 pound fish can damn well do what it wants. Mm-hmm. It kind of overwhelms the tackle. Especially if you've got a single-hand bamboo rod type thing, you know. Mm-hmm. But when we uh, changed, when the taxonomists uh, went back and recategorized, refigured the uh, genetic history of the of the fish, and uh, placed steelhead with Pacific salmon, I mean steelheaders went nuts. They thought, 
Ankarinkus, Micus, are you kidding me? Yeah. I mean, that's, what an ugly name for, <laughs> I mean, we're Salmo, man. We're right there with uh, all the, the fish of royalty. We're not a Pacific salmon. And then, you know, the other thing is, well, steelhead don't die after they spawn like Pacific salmon do. Some of the people just went, they got really irate because it seemed to undercut the close association with uh, with Atlantic salmon meant that all those wonderful flies and techniques that you could take Atlantic salmon with and also take steelhead with seemed to uh, confirm that the two are genetically virtually identical. You can take largemouth bass with the same setup that you catch Atlantic salmon on. Sure. So that's a tough argument. Was it just pride? Was it ego? What was it that was so tradition? About it? Tradition. It, yeah, because uh, uh, this sounds uh, really ego-driven, but until steelhead fly fishing and flies came out that described all the guys who developed these flies, every from Enos Bradner to Brad's Brat to uh, Lloyd Silvius to um, did you have Glasso in there? Sid Glasso, of course, yes. Uh, Tommy Brayshaw, and those guys were the foundation of our sport. And when Steelhead Fly Fishing and Flies came out, it it that was that became it wasn't a very well written book either because I didn't have a computer at the time, but or didn't I mean that we were doing it on you know old Olympic portable typewriter, so the wow. ed- editing was a total pain in the ass. But um, that established the first tradition for steelhead fly fishing it really did it really did i'll give you that for sure how about how about hey brown was he an influence in your life yeah did you ever get to meet him oh yeah yeah can yeah. you tell what was that like um amato and i and others we idolized Hag brown he was bigger than life and i was i had every book that he wrote and I was writing for Frank's little magazine, this little fly column. And Frank and I were going to a uh, conservation, uh, Oregon conservation thing, Trout Unlimited. I think that's what it was. Mm-hmm. It's also where I got together with Jack Hemingway. We became really good friends. And he reviewed my book. Thank God for that. He, he was a game warden? No, Jack Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway. Yeah, I, mean, I thought he would work somehow in. He was uh, he served on the Idaho Game Commission. That's what it was. You're okay. absolutely right. Good for you. So we went to this uh, dinner for Trot Unlimited, and Hank Brown was there, and uh, I was like mesmerized. It was like <laughs> meeting. Oh my God! There's no Hollywood star would even come close. I was just like thunderstruck by being in his presence, and you know, I tried to strike up a conversation with him, and I was stuttering and stammering around him. <laughs> and uh, he said, you know, I uh, read Frank's magazine, Salmon Trout's Two-Hunter, and I went, really? And he said, yeah, the only reason I read the magazine is for your column. Oh, how flattering. And I went, really? Well, I, I can't believe, I'm just, you know, I, well, I'm speechless. And he said, would, would uh, you be kind enough to have dinner with me tonight? Oh, yeah, I just like wet my pants. And Frank's, um, Frank was idolized, uh, Hig Brown so much that, um, after dinner and the speakers got up and, you know, had to talk and Hig Brown lit up a cigar 
And when he, after he tapped out what was the stub of the cigar, and we were all getting up to leave, uh, Frank's wife, Gail, swiped the cigar butt and had it in, set in a block of plastic. <laughs> <laughs> and it sat on the windowsill in their house. Aww. Hank Brown's cigar. And Hank Brown sent me two original steelhead beads. Mm-hmm. One I sent to the museum in Manchester, Vermont. I regret that I ever sent those flies to those guys. It's still sitting on panes of glass in their basement ah. 40 years later. But uh, And the other one I um, gave Frank. And the Hague Brown, uh, uh, Hague Brown Fly Fishing Club, they came to me and asked me if, if I had a, a steelhead bee, and I went, no, I, I wish to God I did, I'd give it to you to put on display, because uh, the only one I have left is in Vermont. So you're writing a book right now on steelhead flies. <laughs> Would you care to elaborate? Um, working title is Working Steelhead Flies. Okay. And uh, years ago, uh, you know, wading uh, one of the OP rivers with a bunch of friends and clients, I realized not one person in the, was casting a traditional steelhead fly. They've all gone to using, uh, I don't like, uh, I've done it hundreds of times, but I don't like trying to uh, tie, lash down um, a wire loop on a, a single piece of hook. Uh, it's hard to get um, nice and straight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I can find, turn and yeah, I find it easier to use a shank, mm-hmm. a, a Waddington, which is kind of totally regressive because uh, that was a, you know, you take a, a Waddington or a, a shank with a loop at the end, you put a split ring in there, you put a treble hook in there, you tie the fly, and then they were using that in the 1870s in England mm-hmm. for salmon. And uh, those shanks are the most awesome, uh, with two tracks, it's the most awesome way to set up a, a fly pattern. For one thing, it carries that little extra weight. And I've kind of gone through and figure out, um, if you're going to ride the hook up in a stinger position, uh, so it, uh, it it's less prone to fouling, there's a certain amount of weight at the front that will carry a stinger hook upright. Mm-hmm. So if I'm using number four hooks, uh, 160th of an ounce will ride that upright, and a 140th of an ounce will ride a number two hook upright. So within those parameters, I kind of, uh, I've got a new series of flies called Steel Flash Flies, and they're deadly. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not boasting. I'm boasting, but they're, they're deadly. So the book's not about this pattern, though. The book is about multiple patterns? Yes. Is it a historical book? Is it a book on trending patterns? Today? Trending patterns. Is it just fly recipes? Is there any sort of storyline behind it? Oh yeah, there's storylines and there's people. That's why I said I want to. I've seen pictures of your April Vokey intruder. Oh yeah. Fox. Yeah. Fox. Yeah. I'm pretty. You know, I don't know. I don't know if I stand by a lot of my flies these days. They uh, they catch fish like crazy. I'm not going to lie. They catch a lot of fish. But I've really learned to simplify over the years, and I've learned to downsize. So the sugar pop was probably my most popular fly. And it just like you, it catches a lot of fish, and especially when you fish it with confidence. But um, I've become a big fan of stacking tubes. I like to stack tubes. So I tie... 
very simple tubes with just a ball of dubbing and then some Maria over top and a little bit of flash. And I tie them in various sizes, so either small or long, and not too long, nothing obnoxious, but uh, long enough so that the extending Rhea fibers will cover a trailing hook. And without, anyway, without overcomplication, what I do is I tie these single tube flies. And then if I go to the river uh, and it's low and clear, I slide down one, so that's maybe an inch long. And I tie my stinger hook nice and tight and snug to my tube. And then I always leave a little bit of room in the front of the tube and I carry tungsten beads with me. So if I need to get down in, in pocket water, I'll slide the tungsten bead down on top of that tube. And if I want to not be on, you know, getting down, I'll just take the tungsten off. Say the water gets murky, I just take a second one of those tubes and I slide them down. So I can basically do a mix and match of my color, a mix and match on my size, and never feel like I'm limited. But the thing is, Trey, is it's just really simple. And I, exactly, yeah, you've got a big bag of tungsten beads right there. Yeah, exactly. So the thing, the thing for me is, um, I think, I, I gotta be honest with you, I think that we put so much concentration on the fly pattern that we all stop to forget that as the fly's swinging, they oftentimes all look extremely similar in the water. And it's more so the, yeah, the, the flies that you have printed out here in front of me. I noticed that this, the, the color selection that I picked for my steel flash flies mm-hmm. were all the same color selection that they <laughs> these guys designed different looking flies, kind of, but the same color selection. But I've done exactly what you've done. I've had a tube fly and then I, uh, um, slid a little orange bead down it. Mm-hmm. It looks like a like a little muddler or something that's trying to get away with a salmon egg, egg or something. Yeah. And uh, had steelhead uh, hit it, and I'm positive they hit it because it looks like a little egg sucker. Yeah, egg yeah. sucking leech. Yeah. But I and I just I'm not trying to take away from anything anyone's doing or your book for that matter. And we're going to get back onto that subject in just a moment, but. Do know if you are um, unfortunately stumbling across stuff on Google, because we all know how credible Google is. Um, <laughs> some of those flies I don't stand behind. A lot of them, I tie flies for meditation, and it's very relaxing for me. And so I'll put in extra, you know, extra wings here and extra wings there. Mm-hmm. But it's not necessarily for anything other than because it makes me feel nice when I open up my fly box. So that said, on the on your book though. What are you doing? Are you are you profiling certain anglers from today? Mm-hmm. Are you paralleling the patterns from today from what they were yesterday? I mean, I know you're a history buff as well. Yeah, no, I, I'm. Uh, if, if I had a page that was for squid rows, mm-hmm. I would have one fly featured. Maybe Scott Howell tie it. Mm-hmm. List the recipe and then list all the other colors, right. uh, and then be done with it and move on to uh, another person. And, okay. Uh, uh, I want each picture. I don't want to necessarily have a picture of a guy holding a fish as much as I want to see um, the person maybe uh, having a tailed steelhead in which the steelhead was caught on the fly being featured. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, so I, I got, I mean, I've got the whole story. I've got the, the angler, the fish, the fly, the uh, recipe for tying the fly, if it's a complicated fly, uh, I'll go through the various steps. Um, I wrote the forward for Jay Nicholas's reprint of um, Intruder Essentials. Very simple book. 
Uh, he has 24 fl- uh, flies that he has invented and uh, has tied. They're kind of this generation's version of classic steelhead patterns from uh, the turn of the century, the turn of the, of the uh, 20th century, you know, around 1900, where these flies were incredibly comp- complex. I've seen intruders that would make you crazy. It takes you an hour and a half to tie one of the mm-hmm. things. And that's for the, that's, uh, for meditation. Yes, yeah, for the fishermen. Let's be honest. It's yeah. for the fishermen. I've seen, um, some of the YouTube videos on an intruder. And April, it's like, you think the thing cannot carry any more materials and the guy's got more stuff to wind on and more stuff to wind on. And uh, there is a, uh, reverse progression. It's boy, every time that he adds on more stuff, the less effective the fly is. Yeah, well, the problem is, is they don't cast as well, and when there's too much material or it's overdressed, they can't penetrate the water surface efficiently, anyway. Because I mean, if you, especially for summer steelhead, and I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna be honest with you, Trey. One of my big pet peeves are are people who fish these huge, obnoxious flies for summer run steelhead, and the reason being, I mean, we all know obviously that the winter run fish enter mature and the summer run fish enter immature. But it does make a difference in the type of water that they're sitting in. So if you have a, a winter steelhead and it's sitting in a deep trough, of course you're going to want to tie with materials that are going to flow and kind of move in that slow oozing water, if you will. So there's your bunny and your marabou and uh, your rubber legs, if that's your thing. I mean, I get that. But if you're fishing for summer runs and you're on a stream where these fish are sitting in fast tailouts, a sparse fly is going to penetrate through that water column mm-hmm. faster. And so it's shocking to me the amount of people who tie on a, say, an intruder versus a green butt skunk, whereas a green butt skunk can get down through that column so much faster. And that's why traditionally, as you know, they use these heavy gauge hooks to be able to get down through that water column. And I think that we're having a disconnect here. So are you going to be able to acknowledge that in, in your book? Because you're one of our last historians that I just... I mean, are we losing you? Are you gonna Are you gonna keep the history alive? You know, or is it gonna be a completely new age book? And are we gonna slowly lose? No, no. Oh no. There's. Uh, you can take. You can create uh, using a tube. With or without additional weight. Mm-hmm. You can create traditional uh, steelhead flies. You can make some of the most beautiful greenbutt skunks you've ever seen. But these were lovely little creations. Mm-hmm. I take uh, great umbrage about, um, I don't like the term dry line, never have. I always use the word floating line, but dry line is kind of, it is what it is. And so it's part of our lexicon now. But the idea that you're going to not fish sink lines, that you're going to fish a floating line and use a big hook like a three or four out hook to help get your fly down with a long leader. It's kind of like a trick shooting and, uh, it's, uh, boy, do I go after that because, uh, you're not fishing a fly, you're fishing a gaff. Mm. So yeah, the idea of using these, uh, you know, when these big, these big hooks were being used by guys fishing silk lines, undressed silk lines, the big hook was the weight that got the fly down. It's inexcusable to use a, uh, a big hook anymore. A two-out hook is uh, a two-out hook is is lethal in a lot of even on a big steelhead. If it 
goes up through the roof of the mouth, mm-hmm. or it goes, uh, it hooks farther back in the throat and goes through the uh, side of the jaw mm-hmm. and into the gill area, or hits an artery, or a, you know, they they bleed out. But you're talking hook size. Let's say you got a four inch hook, mm-hmm. and it's got a four inch profile. But then you have a four inch. We're going to compare it to a four inch fly with a size two stinger hook. So now we've got two different flies that have the same size profile, but one's tied on a full hook and one's tied on a shank with a short stinger hook. Mm-hmm. The fish is going to take that fly in the same manner because it's the same same profile. Say that they take it from the side. How does it make a difference as far as far as damage to the fish goes when you're looking at the hook size? If, if the fly profile is the same, does that make sense? Like if they're smashing it the same way, whether it's a, a four-aught or whether it's a, a tube with a size one stinger hook, how is one going to be more detrimental than the other if the fly profile in, as a whole is the same? Because the um, if you're fishing a, a four-aught hook for a uh, 10 or 15-pound steelhead, Unless you get lucky and hook it in the lip, mm. try to try to find me a uh, a position that that hook goes in the mouth and penetrates that does not kill the fish or blind it. I mean, uh, take a hook that size and uh, run it all the way to the bend somewhere in that fish's mouth, uh, and the penetration. I mean. The penetration of a hook that size is going to be of a four-odd. It would be just uh, lethal. But even a two-odd, the penetration with a uh, British call them beak point. I call them roll point sometimes. But mm-hmm. uh, that hook goes in. God, I've seen I've seen it go into their eye socket. Okay, so it's not. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm learning here. So. Is it not so much the hook shank length that's as critical as the amount of space between, say, the point of the hook and the, the curvature all the way up to where that bend begins? Yeah, the gap of the hook. Okay, so that's where most of the damage occurs? And also the uh, the length of the point. Old-fashioned hooks. Yeah, they're very long. They have very long points, and especially for saltwater when you got some old mustads, the first thing you did was get out your file and you refiled them and you redressed the point so it was triangulated. Mm-hmm. Lefty describes this in one of his books way back when. And the leading edge of that, if the, if the hook is filed like that, this part up here is like a scalpel. That's the idea. And, uh, boy, back in the day, one of the things we found was that, uh, for example, on sailfish, if they were hooked in the roof of their mouth, the hook would uh, begin cutting its way across the mouth oh. like a scalpel. Mm-hmm. And then if there was any tension released, the hook just fell out because it had made uh, it, it had cut its way into a wound rather than just impaling it. When we first started fishing, we were losing, oh, God, I think 80% of the fish would... Part of it was that we were set up wrong. I mean, we were using these uh, stupid, um, we'd have a fly and then we'd have a 12, 24 inches above the fly. We'd have a um, 
piece of foam body. That would create the disturbance. The idea was that the uh, the fish would come up and uh, see the disturbance and eat the fly. Well, oh, okay. they wouldn't. They'd come up and eat the they'd eat the disturbance. <laughs> yeah. And then the fly would swing around lots of times and uh, impale the, the outside of the fish's mouth. Hmm. Then the fight would go on forever because you couldn't shut the fish down. And uh, so I cannot tell you down in Costa Rica the number of times I'd see a fish greyhound out and then jump in the air and out would see the, the thing. And, and it was obvious the fish had bitten down on the uh, popper. But back to your point, uh, the, the gap and the, and the distance of the point and, and the penetration, the long dagger going into a fish's mouth. And, and, uh, actually, I mean, a, a small hook can do a terrific amount of damage to a good-sized fish. Mm-hmm. That's a real peeve of mine is uh, going to, you know, I like going to smaller hooks to try to reduce the damage. Yeah. Um, the uh, Even if you don't fish barbless. Um, Which I think there's no excuse for. I'm... Pretty opinionated on these podcasts. I, I think people should be pinching their barbs. Just my two cents. Oh, yeah, I agree. Uh, you've got to be uh, with some of the uh, fine wire hooks, the Japanese hooks. The barb is so tiny that you've got to really uh, do it with some uh, forceps and be careful. Otherwise, you fracture and end up fracturing the hook. Mm-hmm. But uh, I totally agree. I mean, there's uh, keep a tight line to the fish, and, and it's a rolled point. Uh, the first time I went to Venezuela, we lost every white marlin that we could, we could stick. We stuck a lot. Um, the hooks were horrible in those days. We, we were trying to refile mustaz and stuff and owner only made the hooks up to four odd. And, uh, they were made in such a manner that and they had a straight point. They weren't rolled point at all. So I was uh, returning to, um, Venezuela to fish for whites again. And I was in the local hardware store, and they had uh, what they call the octopus halibut hooks by Gamagatsu. Mm-hmm, very familiar. Yeah, and they were offset, and they had an upturned eye, and they were a bait hook. Lordy, were they sharp. And I went, oh. So my friend met me uh, at the uh, place where the charter was to be uh, on the coast, and uh, we started fishing for uh, stri- uh, these uh, whites which are just most incredibly hyperkinetic fish in the world. And every fish that took the fly, I mean, really took it, didn't even have to, I mean, setting on a fish is kind of a waste of time anyway. Half the time when the fish does a 180 and takes off with your fly and starts jumping, the line drag sets the hook anyway. But anyway, um, so I am... I started bugging Gamagatsu about developing a new kind of hook, and um, they they went along with it. We, they ordered uh, I ordered forty thousand. Wow! Yeah, and they they were marketed worldwide under my name, Tracom's Big Game Hook, and uh, the Australians. Mm-hmm. That was the problem because they fell in love with the hook for baiting big blacks on uh. light on light fishing gear, not fly fishing. Because the hooks came as big as 10 odd. Mm, wow. So the hooks had to go from Japan to the United States, from the United States to, through customs. Then they had to go through uh, to Australia. By that time, the hooks were running a couple bucks a piece. 
And the Australians wanted them in, you know, a hundred out of whack. So the Australians started backdooring uh, Gamagatsu, and it was called the uh, 12SL, I think. And I, and then finally the, the floodgates were opened, and uh, you could buy them. Um, they, Gamagatsu still sold the Trey Combs Big Game Hook, mm-hmm. but for less money you could buy a, a straight uh, 12SL. I didn't care one way or the other. I was happy. Uh, it was, uh, but it was. It changed from that point on. No one ever used a straight point hook. Everybody used a roll, a big point. Okay. Because yeah. there was almost no barb to it. Okay. And it just rolled in. Had tremendous holding power. What's next for Tracombs? I I know that uh, people know that you you're back. You've been having some back problems. You've had back surgery. Yeah, and uh, and word spreads fast. I mean, I was in Australia, and, and one of the guys said, "Oh, you're going to podcast, right? Hasn't he gone crook?" And that means isn't he isn't he is he sick? Is he still out and about? And in sitting here with you, I mean, I half expected you to open the door and not be able to stand up straight. And you were you're you're super fast on your feet, and you seem like you're still pretty athletic, and you're super sharp. What what's next for you? Um. I have, um, good question. I have great expectations for this book. I feel pretty confident about that I can grab this, uh, book by the horns and, uh, and do a really good job of it. Uh, the, um, I, I don't know how I'll go about it if I'm not, if I have to underwrite the expense myself. I'm not, I'm confident that I can make money on it, but I want it to be the right I want it to be the right book and the right quality. Mm-hmm. And I don't really want to go through Stackpole because there's just no money in it. I mean, there's you can get prestige and stuff, but at this point, I'd rather have the money. But uh, I'm very happy fishing the winter fish on the Quinault uh, Limit Peninsula. Mm-hmm. And if my back was in really good shape, I'd probably try to fund a trip to the Keys for tarpon. That was my... F- I loved it. Uh, I love bone fishing. I love permit fishing. Um... I'd go back to the Yucatan tomorrow. Mm-hmm. They're huge. The permit and the Yucatan is the best permit fishing in the world. What would you like us to remember you as? Um, a, a person who set in motion the history of steelhead fly fishing. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Please be sure to leave a review on iTunes and be sure to tune in next time when I sit down with Lorianne Murphy at her home in San Pedro, Belize. Mm-hmm.